Well, friends, uh, I want you to open your Bibles not to the book of Zechariah, which is where we'll be going for these next few weeks, but to Ezra. If you note on your sermon outline there, we're going to start in Ezra, Ezra chapter 4. Why are we doing that is to set the scene of where we're going. This sermon, um, I misspoke a few weeks ago or last week saying that this would be when we got into our exposition of Zechariah. We actually won't. This is an introductory sermon. We'll do a little exposition of Ezra and we'll hit an overview of Zechariah. And then next Sunday, we start with Zechariah proper in chapter 1, verse 1, and begin walking through our sermon series, Being God's People. And today we're talking about restoration. I don't know if it's happened to you. Some of you have been fortunate enough to make it as far as you've made it in life without having broken a bone. Those of you that have broken a bone, some of you many bones, know that most of the time there is an unmistakable feeling that it is broken or at least severely bruised. You know that moment when you fall, and you may not hear a crack, but you feel an immediate pain, a sharp pain, a burning pain. And you think, oh my, what have I done here? There was a time when I had a fall and I just laid still because I was mentally taking reference of my body and what was hurting. And somebody came up to me and said, are you alive? (laughs) I'm like, I'm alive. I'm just trying to see if anything feels broken. Nothing was broken that time. But if you've broken a bone, whether it's your nose, your collarbone, a rib, an ankle, an arm, you know the feeling. And you know that it's not a good feeling. And there are certain things that we do depending on the bone in order to make that bone whole again. The worst case, you might have to have some sort of surgery or multiple surgeries. You might have to have, uh, you know, screws or plates or pins. You might have to have a cast or be immobilized somehow, depending on the bone and where. Broken bones hurt, but broken bones can be mended. What we're talking about this morning as we begin our exposition of Zechariah is restoration. Not unlike the setting and the healing of a broken bone. You see, what had happened in the history of the people, God's people, the Jewish people, had led to a brokenness and division on multiple levels. First, there was dividedness of the nation, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And because of their rebellion against God, and even though God sent prophets to them to warn them, Israel kept going their own way and being idolatrous, and God carried them off into captivity, 722 B.C., And then a century and a half later, in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, was carried off into captivity as well. But then by God's province, Cyrus, a Persian king, Cyrus, made an edict about the restoration of Jerusalem and its walls and its worship and its temple system and all that sort of stuff. So that edict of Cyrus and about 50,000 Jewish people went back from deportation to go back to Jerusalem and got busy rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed and that symbol of God's relationship among them. But then opposition came against them and they got sidetracked. And so what we see in the books of Haggai and Zechariah, because they are contemporary, 
are these two men of God, these two prophets that have come to God's people now at 520 B.C. Remember, we're B.C., so time counts to smaller numbers moving forward. To encourage God's people to rebuild the temple because the temple in Jerusalem is the symbol of God's presence among the people in Jerusalem, but also his presence in the in his entire people. And that's the importance of this restoration of the temple. It meant the restoration of a worship relationship with God and his people. When it comes to relationships and when they're broken, all of us have probably been there before. You may be there right now. You might even feel that there's somebody else that's in this room that you have a broken relationship with and that you wish or hope that you could fix. It might have started with a disagreement. It might have started with a disappointment, maybe disrespect, some dis of some type. But now things have grown to unforgiveness and maybe even anger or hatred or a grudge or all sorts of other things that are the weeds of unforgiveness. And you need restoration. Pastor Steve Dighton says the only commodity we have is relationships. Our relationship with one another, eternal beings made in God's image, and our relationship with God himself. The commodity is those relationships. Dr. Rodney Harrison down at Midwestern Seminary said, and I've quoted him here before, God loves us so much that he won't let us go through life with unreconciled relationships. So God seeks to restore our relationship with him, but he also seeks that we might restore our relationship with one another. And as we begin to examine the book of Zechariah, we'll see that that idea of being God's people in every step it takes for that relationship to be restored again and again. Now, just a few introductory notes on Zechariah beyond the setting of the scene that I've already done. Um, I've said to you, but maybe you weren't here, that interestingly enough, this book of Zechariah, 14 chapters, penultimate book of the Old Testament, is the second most quoted book in the entire New Testament. And particularly to the writers of the Gospels, and particularly to the early church because of the viewpoint of Zechariah in the kingdom of God and the relationship with God, it was the most important book aside from Deuteronomy, not just in the number of quotes. And we're going to see as we walk through our exposition of Zechariah in the weeks ahead, direct quotes from Zechariah in the Gospels in particular. But then you will see over a hundred, I think it was 120 something, allusions to the language in Zechariah that are throughout the New Testament. I started on a page in one of my commentaries, you know, these books I use to help me with sermons written by guys with lots of initials after their name. And I'm like, okay, I'm Zechariah is alluded to here, 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 here. Turn the page here. Oh my word. Turn the page again. Turn the page again. Again and again and again, the New Testament writers are referring back to Zechariah for their language, for their symbolism in this relationship with God. So Zechariah is a prophet. His job is to look at the scene and to look at God's people and to hear from God. And deliver God's message to God's people so that they might do something to affect change in the scene. That's generally the way prophecy works, right? 
So here he is, this guy that God has called out, not unlike many other prophets. We do not know a lot about him, but most unlike other prophets or minor prophets, excuse me, he is referred to in other books in the Old Testament. And that's where we pick him up in Ezra. We're going to see that throughout the book of Zechariah, the themes of salvation, of Advent, the kingdom of God. And remember, the temple of, symbolizes the kingdom of God. But the unifying theme is salvation and God's salvation history with his people and calling them to himself. Zechariah is the most messianic and even the most apocalyptic, even the most eschatological, talking about end times, of all the Old Testament writings. And we'll see that again and again in the weeks ahead. But now, I asked you to turn to Ezra, and we'll get there in just a minute, but let me help you fill out the blanks that are on your top of your sermon outline. Because I've got a few more sentences of introduction I did want you to fill in. And here's that first one. The Jews of the Old Testament were not unlike Christ followers today in following a tragic cycle. They were chosen and then they were privileged by God, but they became presumptuous and then rebellious. How many of us... When we trust Christ as our Savior, we're chosen. And it is God who calls us. It is God who works in us to will and to act according to His good purpose. And because He chose us and we responded to Him and entered into a personal relationship with Jesus, we have these privileges of the Holy Spirit within us, the privileges of spiritual gifts that we're given, privileges of the fellowship of believers, but unfortunately, we can take these blessings and these privileges as if they are our, our, our own and become presumptuous and even outright rebellious. So as a result, that's the next slide in your next sentence, God allowed them to be conquered. Yet they were always God's people and he had a sovereign plan. As a result, God allowed them to be conquered, yet they were always God's people, and He always had a sovereign plan. You can remember and rest in that, friends, that no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what's happening in our world, and if you're like me on social media, you see people tying together, you know, uh, wildfires and hurricanes and all sorts of other things with apocalyptic events that the end times are closer. And certainly the end is closer today than it was yesterday, but I'm not ready yet to say that Jesus is coming tomorrow. I haven't seen that many signs. But here's what we know, that no matter what happens, God always has a plan, and we're always His people. That if He's chosen you, if He's called you, and if you have a relationship through Jesus, you are His. We can rest in that. Let's pray together. God, our Father, as we open your word now and we look back in time into a history that may seem quite foreign to us, would you please remind us that these who were your people in the days of Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah are our spiritual ancestors. And that the issues they had 
some of their own creation in their relationship with you are not unlike the issues we have. And that because you chose us and because you blessed us, that we might become presumptuous and even rebellious. And in our rebellion, you may allow negative circumstances in our lives in order to get our attention to draw us back to you. God, you may even bring judgment on our lives as you did with your people in the Old Testament. Our prayer is that we would be encouraged, however, that we would learn from these people and learn what Zechariah has to teach us, that we might be more like Jesus. So God, speak to us about restoring our relationship with you and healing the brokenness in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Well, friends, if you've got your Bibles and Ezra, I want you to follow along with me as I read from the New International Version, and mine's the older copy, the 84. So if your New International Version doesn't read quite the same, listen to the situation. The situation that we find ourselves in when we come to the book of Zechariah, because We don't want to just start in our exposition of Zechariah without an understanding of what was going on there and the situation so we can best apply it to us today. And so the situation, Ezra chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, this is 539 B.C., They came to Zerubbabel, that's the leader of the Jewish people at that time, and the heads of the families and said, Let us help you because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshadaron, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So another king had settled foreign peoples in their land. And the reason I use that tone of voice is it wasn't an honest offer. And besides that, God's people knew they needed to do it God's way. So verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building the temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. So they told him no. And yeah, you might say, well, they offered him help, but it wasn't God's way. So look at the response of the other folks, verse 4. Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them. Spin doctors, I mean, you know, social media. And frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So... That's to 520. So for almost 20 years, they sought to actively discourage the rebuilding of the temple. So that's what we get to in your first point there that has a blank. The situation, what was the need for Zechariah's ministry? The need was to rebuild the temple In those days, without the Holy Spirit living within followers of God, his people, 
They had to worship God through the temple, so they needed the temple as a place of worship. It was where they were able to offer sacrifices to God, where they were able to worship God, give their offerings. Everything centered on the temple. So their need in Zechariah's ministry was to encourage the people to rebuild the temple because the temple building had been stalled for 20 years. It had been destroyed by that time for 66 years by the time Zechariah steps on the scene. So your next one there is why would their work succeed? Why would their work succeed? Excuse me. So we're skipping ahead and we're skipping ahead to find out why would their work succeed and you come to Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Jerusalem, in, Ju- in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. Now, I want to keep going on. Uh, <clears throat> so, why would their work succeed? We need to answer that question before I keep going on. Forgive me. And that's because God's men prophesied to God's people. The men that God called to encourage them, the men that God called to instruct them, the men that God called to inspire them, did their work. Zechariah and Haggai, we don't know how long they were prophets before, and we don't know how closely they walked with God before, but God called them to do their work. And if you want to know what the situation was and what their argument was, then you can go back to chapter 4 there. In chapter 4, and you read uh, the letter from the opposition to the uh, uh, king, and it starts in verse 9 there. Here's what we're reporting. And then the reply back, um, you know, uh, is here in chapter 5. And we're going to read that in just a moment. But then you've got another question there. Your third question is how did they accomplish their work? How did they accomplish their work? Read with me in verse 2, Ezra 5, 2. Then Zerubbabel... Son of Sheatiel and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. How did they accomplish their work? Well, you can answer that a couple ways. You might say, number one, they just got started. But more importantly, what I point out is that they did it together. You had Zerubbabel, who had been sent back with the first group in 539, who had been sidetracked. But then you had Joshua, who had been his right man, sent back with the first group in 539, sidetracked with Zerubbabel and all the people. And then the prophets. So not only Zechariah and Haggai, but any other people that were among the prophets that ministered to the people. And then it said, uh, of God were there with them. So that this group of leaders said, we're going to do this, and they did it. They accomplished their work together. Around here, I use the phrase, we're better together. We're always better together because we share our giftedness. We share our strengths. We share our abilities, our personality, our experience. And we're better together than we are individually when we work together. And you see that principle right there in Ezra chapter 5. So let's go on in Ezra 5.3. At that time, Tatnai, the governor of the trans-Euphrates, and Shetha Bozni and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? 
They also ask, what are the names of the men constructing this building? A little intimidation going on there. We want to know who's in charge. But the eye of their God were watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius, that's the Persian king at the time, and his written reply could be received. That's your next question. Who is watching over their work? Who is watching over their work? God was. The eye of their Lord God was on them. God was watching over. He commanded them to do it. And when he commanded them, he brought them together to do it. And they got to work actually doing it. And it says God was watching over them. Friends, we have that reassurance that if we're doing God's work, God's going to accomplish it through us. J. Hudson Taylor said that uh, God's work done in God's way will never lack for God's provision. When we do God's work, he will accomplish it through us. And notice the letter. Verse 6. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, governor of the Trans-Euphrates, and his friend with the hard name, and the associates and the officials of the Trans-Euphrates sent to King Darius. The report they sent to him as follows. So these are the guys that are the regional governmental powers writing a letter to tattletale to the king of the whole nation about what these terrible Jewish people are doing in rebuilding the temple. So listen to their report. It says, To the king, the king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. So these are the bad guys reporting what God's people are doing. So we should be going, yeah, all right, good for them. Verse 9, we question the elders and ask them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? We also ask them their names so that, that we could write them down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. So here's the Jewish guys' answers to the bad guys. We're the servants of God of heaven and earth. You gotta love that. They start with God and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, they're even being honest about what happened. Amen for honesty. They, because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people of Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. So a pagan king gives a decree to rebuild God's house. The Bible says a king's heart is like a water course in the hand of the Lord who directs it wherever he wishes. We face some situations in our life and we look at it and go, that person will never change. Are we saying that God's not God? I do realize people have free will, but God can change hearts. Your spouse, your child, your boss. God can change hearts. God can even make the king of a growing, vast nation like Cyrus look to one small people of his whole kingdom and issue a decree that would restore the worship for them. Verse 14. 
He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple in Babylon. So in other words, he's sending back all the items that made up the worship. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, who he had appointed governor. And he told them, take these articles and go deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on this site. So this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of this house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but it is not yet finished. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be made of the royal archives of Babylon to see if the king Cyrus did, in fact, issue a decree to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. uh, Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. So they're going about the proper channels. The bad guys complain to King Darius. Hey, these folks are building a temple. We're not sure they should be doing this. God's people say, we have a command from, you know, the guy that kind of was your predecessor to say we could do this. But in the meantime, they're still working and God is watching over them. Your next question is, who did God use to help their work? Who did God use to help their work? Go back to verse 13. Cyrus, king of Babylon. But then pick up with me. In chapter 6, verse 1, King Darius, so this is the current king, then issued an order and they searched the archives stored in the treasury of Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel. uh, And so here's what it says, verse 3. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the uh, temple of God in Jerusalem. And it lays out everything they're going to do. But notice then where we're going to pick up. So verse 8 is where I'm going to skip down to. So this is the new king, the king at the time, saying, Moreover, I decree what you are to do for these elders uh, of the Jews in the construction of the house of God. The expense of this man are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury. So even the rulers, not the Jewish people themselves, but the Persian Empire is going to cover it. He says, whatever they need as far as sacrifices, verse 9, we're going to cover it. Verse 10. And so that they may offer their sacrifices. Verse 11, furthermore, I decree that anyone who changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house and to be lifted and he's being impaled on it. Okay, you mess with these guys, we're going to kill you. Verse 12, may God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Who did God use to help their work? He used two different kings of the same empire, the Persian Empire, Cyrus and Darius. When God needed his work to be done, he went straight to the top. The top as far as man's order and hierarchy. And those men did amazing things on behalf of God and his people to make sure that God's temple would be restored. So friends, when we consider this first point on your outline, the situation, think about where we started. The temple is destroyed. God's people have a broken relationship with him. And think about where we just got to. In just a few minutes time at the end of or the middle of chapter six here of Ezra. That God himself has turned the heart of pagan kings in order to preserve or excuse me, restore and preserve his worship. 
I know it took us a little while to get there. But I hope that you're encouraged, that you see that this is a sovereign God, that when you have a need in your life, that you think, how big is this and how is this going to change? This is the God we still serve. This is the God who's still living and active. Maybe we need to change the size of our prayers to him. So let's look then in Zechariah. So you've been in Ezra, so I want you to turn with me to Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to last, the penultimate book in the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew in the New Testament, swing a left a few pages. And you get to Malachi is the last book there, and then Zechariah. Zechariah is the longest of what are referred to as the minor prophets with 14 chapters, but it's still not a big book. You've got just a few pages make up the book of Zechariah. And this part, don't worry, is going to go a little faster than the last part. And this part is the emphasis, an overview of Zechariah. So we're going to take a flying overview this morning, and then we're going to come back and work through it um, sermon after sermon, week after week. So here we go. Your second uh, or your first point under that second major point is what did God want of his people? What did God want of his people? I'm not going to burden you with reading all six verses there today. That's for your review if you want to go home and read Zechariah today in order to be prepared for the sermons to follow. But look at verse 3. That's our key verse. And that's our scripture memory verse for the month. Therefore, tell the people this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. One word. What did God want of his people? Repentance. Repentance. They had been going their own way, doing their own thing. They had been commanded to rebuild the temple, but allowed other folks to sidetrack them and discourage them. And what God wanted from them was repentance, that they would rebuild the temple. But remember that it wasn't just what the temple was physically. It's what it stood for spiritually. And that was a rebuilt, restored relationship between God and his people. What did God want of his people? Repentance. You know, there's a certain way I word points like this. And I didn't say, what did God want of the Jewish people? What did God want of the people then? You might actually make that present tense. What does God want of his people? What does he want of you and I? Repentance. Your second question there is, what do the visions teach? We're definitely not going to read those. You notice that's five chapters worth of the book of Zechariah. One third to almost a half of the book of Zechariah is covered by that next question. So we're not going to read any of those. But here's your word. What did the visions teach? I'll give you one word. Relationship. The visions of that Zechariah had that we're going to cover in two different sermons, eight different visions, that you read them like poetry and you go, okay, whoa, I don't know what this means. Well, you take a little time and you think about it and you tie it back to biblical history and it makes perfect sense. And that's what we're going to walk through two weeks and three weeks from today. But those visions are about relationship, that God wanted a restored relationship with his people. And he was willing to do what it took in order to restore the relationship with them. So repentance and relationship. 
Let's move to your third question there. And that question is how did God want them to live? How did God want them to live? In my sermon four weeks from today that we're going to cover these two chapters. I use the word service, a single word, but I would say this. Serving one another. Or using our Southview language, being otherish. Otherish. That we're God-powered, we're other-focused, and we're self-sacrificing. We're giving of ourselves on behalf of others. And what you see in chapter 7 and 8 is God commanding them, here's how I want you to worship, but here's how I want you to care for others in that worship, in the way that you serve me. That's one of the great things about being a church family is that you have people available to you to help you. Now, one thing I would remind you is um, ask or at least make your need known. It hurts me when I come upon people who had some sort of need and then they're further hurt emotionally or relationally because no one met their need. And I find out that they really didn't tell anybody about their need. I have to say to them, oh, come on, I know you didn't want to make a big deal out of yourself or, you know, anything like that. But we can't meet your need unless we know that you have it. And that's where, friends, I encourage you to be in relationship with other brothers and sisters in church. Have a Sunday school class that you belong to and you have fellowship there. But Sunday morning's just the start. And meet together and encourage one another and share life with one another outside of Sunday morning so that you know one another. And so when you have a need, you don't feel like, I can't talk to that person about that need. I don't know them. But you can say, I know that person well enough to know that they'll respond to my need. And if they don't or they can't, they'll help me find somebody who will. Just this morning, I'm walking the dog. And Stephen Paulson calls me to tell me he's going to be deployed. And towards the end of that conversation, I said to him, So Stephen, surely there's some things we can do to help take care of Jeannie and Emmeline while you're on deployment. And he said, Oh, I've already talked to Richard Smith, our deacon back there in the purple shirt at the computer. And he said, Richard's going to come over and he's going to look at some things that need to be done around the house um, while I'm gone. And I went, Wow. I show up for church this morning. I say that to Richard. And he says, yeah, I already talked to Ryan. And who else did you say? James. Two other deacons. They said, and, you know, we're going to go over and we're going to do this. I went, cool. How awesome is that? And I just say that, not to brag on our deacons, but just to say to you, friends, make your needs known to us so that we might help one another and serve one another as God would have us do. Your fourth question on this point is what is God's great plan? What is God's great plan? Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are an oracle. In other words, it's a pretty hard preaching message from Zechariah to God's people. But here's what I'll give you the one word I think it's about. It's the title of this sermon, Restoration. It's about restoration. That God is saying to his people, 
I love you enough that I'm not going to let you stay in a sinful state. I love you enough that I'm not going to let you stay separated from me. And I want to call you back to me. And I'm going to care for you. And I'm going to take care of you. And yes, there are things that you have to do. Repent, turn, build the kingdom. But I'm going to provide. I'm going to bless when you do what I've called you to do. Restoration. Let's get to your fifth question there. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. The fifth question is, how will God deliver his people? Now, I'm guessing you haven't read all three chapters while you were sitting here this morning. But if you were going to guess how God would deliver his people, what would your guess be? Somebody out loud. Jesus. Okay. Ultimately through Jesus. Yes. Thank you. Ultimately through Jesus. God is going to deliver his people in those days and time before Jesus. It was similar that God himself was going to come and deliver them in our day after the cross of Christ. It was Jesus himself that God sent as a deliverer. So how will God deliver his people by his power and his might and his love by ultimately Jesus? God delivers us. So I know today's sermon is kind of boring and dry and bland. You're like, oh man, when's the sermon going to be over? It'll be over in just about two minutes, friends. But let me say again. If we're going to study one of the most important books of the Old Testament, that is also probably the most neglected book in, the new, in, the, uh, in our day and time based on its importance to New Testament writers and early Christians. And I felt like we needed to have a good basis of understanding of the situation the people were in, how God was already at work, and how we see those kingdom principles still at work today for us, God's people that he seeks to restore us. Just like if you get a broken bone, certain actions are going to need to be taken in order to restore it to strength and health. We've got our scripture memory verse of the month. And I want us to say that together. We'll say the reference, the verse, and the reference again. And then I'll close us in prayer. Zechariah 1.3 Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Zechariah 1.3. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us a Bible of 66 books that has a whole lot of things. It might confuse us, but that if we take some time and look into the backgrounds and prayerfully consider, you can teach us. So God, we come before you today with Zechariah set out ahead of us in these weeks ahead. And we pray that we would be attentive to your spirit, 
And that we wouldn't dismiss this book as something crusty and old that we do not need. But that we would come before it and by your Holy Spirit with an open mind. See the freshness and the truth of the message you have to proclaim. God, we thank you for your sovereignty that restored your relationship with your people in that day and still seeks to restore a relationship with us today. We certainly pray, God, if there's a soul here that needs to trust Christ as their Savior, that confess that they have sinned and commit their life to follow Him, that they would do that today. Whatever other decision there may be or burdens that need to be prayed over, even at this altar, God, would we do that as we come to you at this time of invitation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.